Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. Good evening, Ash. How are you? Good evening, Greg. Very good. Eating lots of Easter eggs. It's Easter weekend. How are you? It, uh, I'm all right. I haven't had a single Easter egg yet. So, um, yeah, no, all good, though. All good. And the weather's going to be nice for the weekend in the UK, at least. So, mm, yeah, I'm working every day, so I won't. I'm off now for four See days. Any. So, how four days. How, how do you get jobs like that? I'm, I'm in over oh, the weekend. <laughs> I've uh, four day weeks for the next three weeks, so <laughs> that'll do nicely. Nice, nice, nice. Well, last week on last week's episode, we kind of teased we're going to be talking about something a bit unusual, something that you may not kind of heard. It's sort of a sentence that you wouldn't really hear in any normal conversation. We don't. I don't even think we even named it. We only put it on the no, chat yeah. for the people yeah. um, it, that were in the group with us. So, <laughs> so we will reveal it very shortly. But tonight's guest join us. Very experienced cryptologist, author, journalist, conference speaker, travelled around the world investigating all sorts of different things. And that is Richard Freeman. Thank you, Richard, for joining us tonight. Hello. Thanks for having me. Very welcome. So do you want to give just a bit of background on sort of how you got involved in, in the whole thing? I know you got a bit of educational background, you want to talk about that and how you got in, how that evolved into your sort of paranormal investigations? Well, how I got involved in cryptozoology, I can answer that in three words. Classic Doctor Who. I grew up in the 1970s with John Perkins nice. as the Doctor. And because he was incarcerated on Earth by the Time Lords, the monsters he fought were on your doorstep. They were here on Earth. So you had giant maggots coming out of slag heaps in Wales and the sea devils rising up out of the, out of the ocean and a Lovecraftian entities <laughs> yeah. that would possess um, shop room dummies and dolls and bring them to life. And it was wonderful. Um, a million miles better than the, the PC woke gender flip box ticking garbage at the BBC crap out today and tell us it's Doctor Who uh, that's lost 60% of its viewers and all of its merchandise sales for the sake of scoring woke brownie points. Doctor Who back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s was genuinely weird and terrifying and it was as much about horror as it was about science fiction and that's what got me fascinated with weird creatures mm. because the Doctor sometimes went up against things like the abominable snowman and the Loch Ness monster and things like that. So that got me fascinated in strange creatures. And when I left school, I became a zookeeper. I, um, I worked at Twycross Zoo in the West Midlands, uh, where the PG tips chimps came from, if you're old enough to remember them. And I ran the reptile house there. I remember them. <laughs> one, one summer, then I went away and studied zoology at university. And one summer, I was on Bodmin Moor looking for the beast of Bodmin Moor and I visited Potter's Museum of Curiosities at the Jamaica Inn, which is sadly now closed. But uh, they had a little magazine in their shop called Animals and Men, which wasn't as rude as it sounded. And uh, 
I picked it up and it was published by this outfit called the Centre for Fortean Zoology. And I started writing letters to them and then I started writing articles for them. Then I became the Yorkshire representative. And the guy that ran it, John Down, says, when you finished at university, come down to Devon and be the zoological director of the Centre for Fortean Zoology which is this organisation that searches for mysterious animals all over the world and publishes books about it and publishes a magazine and runs a conference. So I moved down to um, Devon expecting this eccentric guy, John Downs, to be some sort of eccentric millionaire living in a mansion and found that actually he was living in a talk-to-down um a house on a, a, a council estate that owed more to the young ones than the X-Files. And I joined the CSZ, <laughs> and the rest is history. Since then, I've been all around the world looking for strange creatures like the Mongolian deathworm and the Tasmanian wolf, the giant anaconda, the yeti, the orang pendek, everything else like that. Now, these days, John lives on a, an old... Um, cottage in a little village in North Devon. I still live in Exeter. But I still work for the Centre of Fourteen Zoology and I still hunt mysterious creatures. Awesome. Awesome. So there's plenty that I want to ask you about, but I guess the I attended the Lapis Conference last year and you gave a, a talk that I didn't want to miss just based on the title alone, uh, which was jeff the talking mongoose and i mean saying them words i mean we talk about a lot of weird stuff a lot of weird things that two years we started the podcast you know a few years ago and there's things we talk about now that i never thought we would have talked about i think this has got to be up up there with just strange sentences it's just yeah a weird a weird sentence and obviously i know sort of kind of how it comes about so i listened to the conference which is awesome you and is it jackie you presented that um, conference with. Uh, so, yeah, so you want to tell us just a bit about Jeff, the talking mongoose, and because you went over to the Isle of Man to sort of investigate the, the, the story, and give us a background on the story, and then what I'm you came across in your investigation. For a, for a second crack at it. Yeah, well, uh, in the 1930s, nice. a guy called Jim Irving, together with his wife and his daughter, Vori, and their sheepdog, Mona, moved from Liverpool, where he was a furniture salesman, uh, moved to a remote farmhouse called Cashin's Gap on the Isle of Man. And they lived in this remote house, which had no electricity. Um, it was, the lights were all either candles or um, oil lamps. Um, and it was heated by fire. And I've actually been to where it once stood, and it's still the backside of nowhere and then some. Now, when they were there, sometime after they moved in, poltergeist activity started to happen. And as with a lot of, I'm sure you're familiar with how poltergeists work, it's almost as if they're reading off a script. Sometimes it starts with a scratching sound in the wall, like some sort of animal. Then there was strange high-pitched vocalizations and then these vocalizations started to sound more like words as if it was a baby copying the language of the family the words of the family used. and then it began to string these words together and then very quickly it became it, it formed sentences 
and seemed to become more intelligent day after day, very, very quickly. And then it introduced itself. It said its name was Jeff, which is spelled G-E-F, Jeff, and that it was the ghost of a mongoose who had been born in Delhi in India in 1852. Now, this mongoose would speak to them and have conversations with them, and occasionally they would see it, and they would describe it as being yellow in colour with a long bushy tail and strange little paws that look almost like hands. And it was, it was something like, so it's like a weird thing created by um, Jim Henson's Creature Workshop. But they weren't the only ones that reported it. Other people who visited the farm heard the creature speaking, and at least one of the people saw it. And Jeff would say that he would go down um, to Peel, where the, where the bus station was. He'd ride on the buses invisibly and spy on people and bring back all the gossip to the house. And he would sneak into the flats where the bus drivers lived and give detailed descriptions of the inside of their flats which turned out all to be very very accurate and there were questions raised about Jeff in Parliament he became like a media sensation of the time he was in all the newspapers uh, he claimed to be the eighth wonder of the world um, and many psychologists like Nando Fodor a parapsychologist rather like Nando Fodor visited the area uh, Nando Fodor heard him speaking. He didn't see Jeff, but he heard his strange high-pitched voice. Um, Harry Price visited there, to which Jeff said, um, Oh, what's that Harry Price? I don't like him. He puts the kibosh on the spirits. I'm out of here. And he refused to come back to the house whilst Price was there. Um, I believe Rollo Ahmed, the, the uh, occultist Rollo, Rollo Ahmed, also visited and heard that Jeff speaking, and Jeff was around for the better part of a decade. And people have suggested that it was uh, the daughter Vori using ventriloquism. But often Jeff, Jeff's voice was heard when Vori not only wasn't in the house but wasn't in the vicinity. And um, people have suggested it was a conspiracy between Mrs. Irving and her daughter because they didn't like living in the Isle of Man to boot Jim so badly he would move back to Liverpool. Well, it wasn't a very successful um, endeavour if that was the case because the eyes of the world were focused on Cashin's Gap and uh, Jim loved it and they got visitors from all over the world. Now eventually when Jim passed away the family moved back to Liverpool and Vori herself, I believe she moved down to Cheltenham and got a job um, with a aeronautics firm. And she was tracked down. She only died in about 13, 14 years ago. She passed away at quite an old age. But she was tracked down and interviewed. And she said, yes, this was real. This little animal did appear in the house. And it spoke, and I said, oh, but I wish he'd have left us alone, because like, in a way it ruined my life, because I never got married, because how could I tell my husband and his family about things like that? And when, I, when she was a girl, she was called the Dalby Spook, because all the other ki kids um, took the piss out of her for living in a haunted house with a ghost mongoose. And she said that this ruined my life. Now, if this had been a hoax, 
and they found her as an old retired lady why is she still keeping up the pretense and if you're going to invent a story about a ghost and this is something I've, I've seen in a lot of these hyper weird high strangeness cases you'd make up something more believable than a talking mongoose now after the house was abandoned it still had a reputation for being haunted it was only torn down in 1971 and um the workmen there were convinced there was something strange in the house and they heard odd scrabbling noises and weird voices and things and it had it still had the reputation of being haunted until the time it was it was torn down i visited there and i stopped in a remote farmhouse several miles away from it and it's quite a trek through if you didn't know where you were going you'd never find it um, through fields and lanes and stuff and nothing remains of it now except a well uh, a bit of old drain pipe and Mrs. Irving's gooseberry bushes that we tried to take cuttings off, but they didn't live. So we were planning to camp out uh, in the site of, of um, Cashin's Gap all night, but the field was full of excitable cows with calves that were thundering everywhere, mooing at the top of their voices and getting distressed. So we, so we decided we'd probably get our tenants trampled. So when you actually get to the site, there's not much to it anymore. It's very underwhelming. Um, so we are heading back to the Isle of Man um, in July of this year and hoping to do a series of seances because I think what Jeff was, was a tulpa, a thought form. He was a subconscious gestalt of the family that manifested in, in the form of this weird little animal. Now, in a lot of other haunting cases, you get strange little animals turning up. Jeff was the most extreme case, and he was the only one that really had a personality. And I think that's because of the amount of attention he got. But uh, the Epworth Priory haunting of the 18th century, their ghost, which funnily enough, they named Old Jeffrey, manifested as a headless badger that crawled out from under the bed and made scratching noises. Uh, there was a haunted house in Cheltenham where the, both the children and their father saw an animal that they said looked like a hare with short ears running on its hind legs and the children nicknamed it Wolfie and the man said you could hear it coming because of its feet slapping on the floor and dozens of people saw this strange animal which appeared in the midst of a... Um, poltergeist case and then there's another case of a haunting where these creatures like large horned black horned toads were seen emerging from under the bed so um weird little animals turning up in haunting cases is far from um unique but jeff was the king of them all oh, I, I don't even know where to start with that so when ash mentioned jeff to me i was like what what the hell is that all about and obviously i started looking into it and i'd never heard of like a poltergeist case or a haunting case where uh, animals have been involved and now you've just mentioned quite a few yeah, far, far more. which is something it's something i definitely need to look into now because we 
we cover off the UFO topic as well. And a lot of people tend to see animals as part of or in the abduction cases um, as part of like screen memories uh, and uh, people see owls and stuff like the giant owls. So like you mentioned, a mongoose, why would somebody make up what is ultimately probably the most unbelievable animal to have a mongoose? Wouldn't you make up like a dog or? Yeah, a demonic black dog. Yeah, which, by the way, still have been seen alongside UFOs and even coming out of UFOs. Demonic black dogs have been seen coming out of UFOs. And in the famous Todd Morton case, the policeman, when he was taken aboard the craft, remembers amongst the things he saw in the craft, a huge black dog. I write about all this in my new book, which is not out yet. We're just waiting on the cover art for it. Uh, and so the internal illustrations, it's called The Highest Strangeness, because generally I write about straight cryptozoology, which is the study of mysterious animals, which are just animals that are unknown to science. But in this this book, um, for the first time, I dip my toes into the, the deep weird with monsters, ghosts, UFOs and miscellaneous phenomena and look for common threads throughout them. Now, a book you absolutely have to read and you can pick it up on ebay and amazon and stuff uh, it was published i think in 73 or 74 it's a book by fw holiday called the dragon and the disc and it's about the links between lake monsters ancient dragon legends and ufos and he believes they are all part of the same overall phenomenon and he, uh, in this book, examines how people who've seen the Loch Ness Monster um, suffer terrible bouts of fear, um, seemingly unnatural levels of fear when they see the creature, and that strange balls of light and odd-looking um, lights in the sky are also reported around Loch Ness and other areas where these lake creatures are seen. And it's his belief that they're not flesh and blood animals, but they are uh, a paranormal entity that was once known as the dragon. And there is another book called Devil Hunter by Mark Alexander, which covers the exorcism of Loch Ness, because the Reverend Dr. Donald Ormond in 1975 actually exorcised Loch Ness because, uh, along with F.W. Holliday, he believed the Loch Ness monster was... Um, an evil supernatural dragon and he carried out an exorcism in Loch Ness at the four points and in the center uh, obviously it was unsuccessful because people still report the Loch Ness monster but both books are a fascinating read and they're a gateway into this whole weird world of high strangeness and the connections between them uh, for example there are cases of Bigfoot, big hairy monsters being seen alongside UFOs many, many times. And you're probably familiar with that. But there are also cases where they turn up in the middle of hauntings. There's one case um, from the 1930s in uh, Australia about a, a farmhouse being haunted. 
and in the middle of the haunting a door bursts open and in comes a yowie the australian warman grabs a woman by her feet and tries to to haul her off there are uh, a couple of cases from the usa one about a night watchman at a brewery um in the northwest of the country who saw a looming hairy entity very like a bigfoot inside the brewery but it would be like standing behind him and you'd see it reflected in in glass and when he turned around there was nothing there and um, it seemed to be acting more like a ghost uh, the epworth priory case i mentioned earlier with old jeffrey another thing they saw was this hulking creature with red eyes which today would be identified as a bigfoot uh, there's another case about a haunted house where this bigfoot like entity would just walk through walls now i think that there are real flesh and blood unknown primates in the world i think the orang pendeca sumatra uh, is probably a ground dwelling orangutan completely unknown to science i think there's a huge ape an upright walking ape in the forests of tibet and the himalayas and other parts of china and malaya that we call the yeti and the yeren and various names like that but i think there's something similar living in north america and in parts of the former soviet union and russia we have this more man-like creature called the almasti which may be more closely related to homo erectus um, maybe a relative of one of our own ancestors still surviving and the russians took it so seriously that in the time of the soviet union they had a commission to look for it the government that commission to look for it but there also seems to be this other phenomenon where big hairy creatures turn up that are not flesh and blood it's almost as if it's mimicking them a good analog would be demonic black dogs which are seen all over the place um, just about every county in britain has a tradition of a black dog and um, huge black dogs with red glowing eyes are still reported today a black shook a barges things like that but there are real big black dogs as well real flesh and blood big black dogs and it's similar similar to that people see phantasms that look like human beings but aren't but there are flesh and blood human beings and it's as if whatever this phenomenon is it mimics things so kind of talking about bigfoot there um you mentioned obviously all different ones from around the world what's your take on the many sightings of a similar creature in in the uk do you think it's possible that we've got something here that resembles a, a bigfoot type creature well the main proponent of that uh, is an attention-seeking nut and has been exposed as attention-seeking nut but people do see these hulking figures my friend john downs saw one at bolam lake now you're not going to get a this is a country park of about 100 acres 30 miles from newcastle city center you're not going to get a race of unknown seven foot tall eight men living 30 miles from newcastle city center britain is a small country it's one of the most deforested countries in europe and the most depleted of wildlife and the most overpopulated there are about 65 million people living in britain there's nowhere for a creature like that to hide but the thing that john said he saw he said it looked two-dimensional it looked flat he described it as looking like a human-shaped hole in reality and it was moving very fast almost like a speed up film running backwards and forwards it's obvious that what he saw wasn't an animal it was something paranormal 
And I think the stories of a Bigfoot-like creature in Britain, the ones that are on the level, are something paranormal. So there, we meant, you mentioned about Bigfoot being seen around UFOs uh, uh, and UFO activity. Do you think it's possible that uh, whilst there, this kind of creature couldn't sort of be wild in the UK, that it's actually, it appears and comes out of portals or from a different dimension like a UFO may do, and it travels interdimensionally, so it appears and then disappears, uh, for want of a better phrase. But that could be why we don't have, like, well, we have multiple sightings of like a wild man, but not the terrain, like you mentioned, uh, and shrubbery and trees and forests to be able to support like a network of, of, of these kind of beings. Well, there are two main theories that I propose in my book. Uh, one is that all of these creatures, or not, not, I don't mean all cryptids, but all of these strange, strange creatures that aren't really cryptids at all, that seem more, for want of a better word, more paranormal. All of these are part of what I call the global monster template. Now you'll see, if you look through legends all over the world in every culture, you'll see the same types of monster turning up in the legends of all cultures. Almost as if there's a rule book and these things will always turn up. You always get dragons and monstrous reptiles in every culture on earth. They go back at least 40,000 years and call them what you will, they turn up in every culture, cultures that never ever met. They're the great great granddaddy of all the monsters. Forget about demons and vampires and zombies and werewolves. The dragon is more ancient and powerful than all of them. You always get these monster reptiles. You always get these hairy giants in every culture, these man-like hairy giants. They would have been called trolls in Scandinavia. But you get them everywhere from Australia to South America. You get monstrous dogs, not just werewolves, but demonic black dogs and analogues thereof. You get monstrous big cats. Now, I'm sure some of these are flesh and blood animals, and indeed they have been captured in Britain. A puma was captured in 1980 in Scotland. Uh, I've seen kills by something in Britain that resembled big cat kills I examined in Africa. And we've got hair, from, so we know that but some of these seem very strange as well. Some of them... Once again, there seems to be a paranormal analogue of a flesh and blood creature. Then you get reports of the fae, fairies, little people. And I don't mean sort of the Disney-fied things with Daphneus wings like Tinkerbell. The fairies were thought to be dangerous and something to be feared in medieval times. But you still get reports from all over, these world, all over the world in every culture of goblins, pixies, duendes, things like that, elves from all over the world. And in, in Iceland, they, for, for example, on Ireland, they still take it very seriously, as they, they do in, in Latin America. Uh, you get stories of monstrous birds, the Thunderbird of North America, the Roch of Middle Eastern law, the Owlman, and these winged entities. Now, I was wondering, well, now, why 
you get all of these creatures again and again in every culture. And it was when I was in Thailand I came up with this um, idea. I, I was there making a documentary about monstrous snakes called Nagas that are reported from the Mekong River. And I was in a sculpture park and they had, uh, because it's, it's a nominally a Buddhist country, but there's cultural cross-pollination. So they have a lot of Hindu deities there as well. And they had, they had the Naga, this monstrous crested snake and huge statues of it. They had Hanuman, who's like the monkey god, the wild man. They had uh, a singer, which is a type of mythological lion that's supposed to live in the jungles of, of um, Asia, even though the only Asian lions uh, are from the more arid areas of Western India. And they had uh, the Garuda, which is a creature half man and half bird. And I thought, blimey, this could be Cornwall, where they've got Morgar the sea serpent, they've got the mysterious big cats, and they've got the owl man of Moore and Smith. And that's when I got to thinking, why are the, these things repeated again and again and again? Now, if you cast your mind back and imagine you're on the plains of East Africa a couple of million years ago, our Australopithecine ancestors are coming down out of the, the forests because the climate's changing, it's becoming drier, there's more savanna, and they're exploiting new food sources like carrier. So they're moving out onto the savanna and they are going to be preyed on by crocodiles, pythons, big raptors like uh, the martial eagle, leopards, lions, African wild dogs, and they will be in competition with other um, primates because there wasn't just one type of Australopithecine, there were several, some smaller, some larger. And there was also Dinopithecus, which was a giant baboon. Um, as big as a man and it's all almost as if these creatures that are re reported today are like distant echoes of the things that were either preying on us or in competition with us in our distant evolutionary past now if you've ever wondered why villains wear black and why evil is associated with black it's because at night we fear the dark outside of the the little ring of firelight around your campfire and astropithecines didn't even make fire fire wasn't even invented until um homo erectus was the first um or homo habilis there's some, there's a bit of um controversy there homo erectus or homo habilis were the first ones to make fire but at night you're at a disadvantage because predators like leopards can see wonderfully in the dark when you're effectively blind and that is why we fear the dark, because it's full of monsters. And it was literally full of monsters back for our ancestors on the plains of East Africa. And have you ever asked yourself in, in buildings that have more than one story, why are bedrooms always upstairs? It's because we feel safer, because they climbed into trees at night to sleep to avoid predators. And these same ancient fears are still with us in the collective subconscious um now there was a theory by uh, rupert sheldrake about something called morph morph uh, morphogenic fields and that was like a 
the collective subconscious for species and he noted that so somewhere in Britain sheep had worked out how to get over cattle grids by curling themselves up in a fluffy ball and rolling over it and suddenly on the other side of the world sheep started to do it then all over the world sheep were doing this it was almost as if they had subconsciously as a species shared this information and he came up with this theory called um, morphogenic fields where there is a, a collective subconscious of a species that shares information now if there's any truth to that these these fossil memories these ancient fears of ours could manifest possibly as unconscious thought forms but thought forms powered by the fear of an not an, a few people or a single person but an entire community or an entire species the entirety of of mankind which is why we get the same monsters again and again and again because they are ancient terrors that would have frightened our primitive ancestors now there was a, a guy called um what was his name uh, frenick kluski he was a medium that was around uh in the early part of the 20th century just before world war one and he was polish originally but he came over to britain and his particular um shtick was manifesting animals at uh, seances and the things he would manifest was an enormous black dog a great lion-like cat a huge bird and there's a photograph of this thing that looks like a nightjar sitting on his head and an ape man it's as if he was tapping into the global monster template stan gooch the parapsychologist stan gooch also at a seance many years later i think this was in the 60s or 70s in the midlands when a creature uh, like an ape man manifested at that seance this hair covered creature squatting there but it wouldn't react when he spoke to it or anything whereas the things manifested by kluski seem to interact with people so if a if a medium can do it the subconscious of a whole species mankind could manifest these things all over the world in different cultures everywhere nick redfern you know the the, the writer nick redfern and he does a lot of ufo books he's a very prolific friend of mine he was contacted by um, a guy once who said that he thought there was a cult performing ritual magic in around Cannock Chase in the Midlands. And his father was a farmer and he found sheep slaughtered and arranged in very weird ways. And Nick went to meet him in a pub and he gave him this incredible story that at first is very hard to swallow. Now, at the same time, there have been sightings of strange creatures in Cannock Chase. There have been sightings of something like a werewolf a huge hair covered bipedal creature with a wolf-like head and creatures very like bigfoot now funnily enough if you look at werewolf legends medieval werewolf legends they're nothing like the werewolves in hollywood or the the quote unquote werewolves we see today that people report today a werewolf in, in legend is a human that transforms entirely into a wolf which is indistinguishable from any other wolf except for maybe weird behavior 
and usually it's through a pact with the devil or a curse or being given a magic belt by a sorcerer or a wolf skin coat and you're transforming to the wolf to do your mischief <coughs> so they're nothing like the wolf human hybrids that hollywood has but weirdly and i think this is important the werewolves reported today look like hollywood werewolves because i think that's what people expect them to look like and that's what they look like these things are being reported around Kanak at the same time that seemed to be some sort of ritual magic going on now this guy that talked to nick redfern he said he had uncovered this cult and he had called them the cult of the moon beast that was his name for them they didn't call themselves that but it's a catchy thing so nick nick went with it and he said that they were a, a small group of occultists who would manifest monsters through black magic and they would manifest these great serpentine beasts and creatures that look like werewolves and creatures that look like bigfoot and they would send them out to frighten people and he said that they would be paid to have people frightened to death by these things because it would look like the person had a heart attack there was you know no no must no fuss basically and he said that when these things first manifest they look like balls of light and then they take on a form now all of this would sound like a load of old cobblers something from a, a hammer movie if it wasn't for certain details in it i mean nick talked to him once and never saw him again the the phone number he gave for him didn't work the contact phone number so it could be that this guy was spinning a weird yard but the odd thing is that balls of light are seen alongside other phenomenon all of the time uh, there uh, there was a uh, a bigfoot case from i believe it was ohio in the 1960s or early, no no sort of be, beg your pardon the, uh, the the early 70s it was 1973 in fact 1973 for some reason was a really weird year it all kicked off in 1973 the floodgates of 40 and weirdness were just booted wide in and somebody said party free beer smart looking women and everything come charging in there's no other year in my researches like 1973 and i've never been able to find out why but 1973 was was just bizarre and there were a series of UFO sightings alongside Bigfoot sightings. And they were uh, investigated by a guy called Stan Gordon. And if you read his book, uh, Secret Invasion, it's all about that and the links between the two. But in this case, there was something that was killing chickens on a farm, seemingly breaking into, with immense strength, breaking into um, chicken coops and tearing the chickens to pieces. And the people shot at it and it, wasn't harmed in the least and it would run through mud without leaving tracks and it would seem to pass through bushes like a ghost but at other times it seemed to manifest as a ball of light and there are other cases where people very similar cases where people have tried to photograph a bigfoot like creature and all they get is a ball of light uh, there's another case where um, 
a Bigfoot was seen holding a ball of light. Uh, there's another case from Tajikistan where a Bigfoot type creature was seen holding a ball of light. Um, balls of light have been seen in poltergeist cases and hauntings. They've been seen with other strange creatures as well. And you get other things like sounds like a baby crying in hauntings and in Bigfoot sightings. Sounds like um, falling rocks or running water when there, where there are none. And these things are like a thread that runs through hauntings, UFOs, monsters. So there's some link to all of it. So one of my theories is that some of these monsters are being manifested unconsciously by the collective human subconscious. And it doesn't mean that they're not real. They're just real in a different way. They're physical enough to attack people. They're physical enough to leave traces. They're physical enough to kill livestock, things like that. The other theory is that some of these things are, as you mentioned earlier, interdimensional. Uh, theoretical physicists have um, considered as many as 18 different dimensions. And uh, in many magical traditions, there are different planes of existence, like the etheric, which is a plane just above ours, where, where they say there are many spirits that can be brought down into our plane of existence by ritual magic or can come by themselves. Now, this is all, all semantics, really. What, we, what one person would call a demon, another person would call a Bigfoot. What one person would call the astral, another person would call another dimension. It's just what we call it. Now, I've been told independently by two Muslims, I know, that uh, spirits they believe in, which are called the jinn, where we derive the word genie from, that are supposed to be made out of smokeless fire, which you can translate as energy, uh, come in a variety of forms. And guess what? Some of them look like dragons. Some of them look like giant birds. Some of them look like huge apes. Some of them look like massive red-eyed dogs. And some of them look like huge black cats. The global monster template again. So whether they're being created by our subconscious or they are being that they're coming of their own accord from some other dimension or they're being brought from another dimension by ritual magic or manifested from the subconscious by ritual magic. They seem to exist and they've always been with us. And in, in, in my book, I trace this back hundreds of years, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. In ancient Babylon and Samaria, they talked about creatures like this, exactly like the things that we're seeing today. And if you look at UFO law, it doesn't make any sense that they're aliens. Someone, um, I was looking at something online the other day, and it was about the, the Hopkinsville Goblin case, which has always been one of my favourites, the Kelly Hopkinsville Goblins, with the little goblin-like creatures around the farm. And, and this guy, uh, he said, he called aliens the intergalactic bogeyman, because he says, they build these craft, they come light years from other stars, just to scare people, just to turn up in farmhouses in the middle of the night, or frighten people and mutilate some animals and go away again. And 
if they're intelligent beings from another world, they're not making any sense in what they're doing. What they're doing is seem, seem to be more like what ghosts do, just scaring people. And another thing is that the main types of alien, and there are quite a few, in inverted commas, uh, different types of alien reported of different shapes and sizes, but the main ones, like greys and Nordics and what have you, they suffer from what I call the Star Trek syndrome. Because if you look at aliens in Star Trek, they're just people. They're people with Klingons, are people with men with beards. Um, and then you've got Vulcans, who are men with pointed ears. And then you've got these, the Androgons, you know, blue men with antennae on their head. They're approximately six feet tall. They have two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two arms, and two legs. Something that evolved on another planet would probably resemble nothing on Earth whatsoever. Which is one of the many reasons I prefer classic Doctor Who to Star Trek because some of their aliens look really goddamn freaky. But um, <clears throat> also, if you look at it, all it is is an updating of fairy law because fairies were supposed to um, kidnap people and take them away, and the people would think they'd only been gone a few minutes and they'd come back when hours or days had gone past. So there's this sort of loss of time like there is in UFO cases. Fairies would put little silver pins behind people's ears to stop them remembering, like supposed alien implants. Fairies would want to interbreed with humans because their bloodline was getting weak, and sometimes they'd swap human babies for changelings, which is like this whole thing about greys hybridising with, with human beings. It, it's all just set pieces being moved. If you imagine a play and they just rearrange the furniture and the set pieces and the costumes, it's the same thing happening. Only in the modern age, it's flying saucers and aliens rather than fairies taking you to fairyland. Although fairies are still reported today. You get these weird cases that are hybrids like um, the mince pie Martians of Rowley Regis in the Midlands. Do you remember that one? 1979, um, a lady and a dog. Um, her name was Jean. I can't remember her second name now. But this was all over the papers when I was nine years old. And there was a woman in Rowley Regis in the West Midlands. It was close to Christmas time. Her son had gone out to work. It was quite early in the morning. She was there with her dog when this spaceship with a scorpion-shaped tail lands in the backyard, totally unseen by the neighbours. The door comes open and in float a number of little aliens that have wings like the Disney conception of a fairy, which fairies in actual legend didn't have, and strange waxy little faces and pointed hats. And they talk to her and she offers them mince pies and they examine the Christmas tree. But then when she lights up a cigarette, they freak out, they're frightened of the fire, and they run away, get back in their spaceship and take off again, which is like a hybrid between UFO law and fairy law with a heap of, of saccharine Disney nonsense in it as well. But the odd thing is they were why would they be frightened of a cigarette lighter if they were if they were from a, a civilization that had a technology to build a spaceship. And the same thing happens again and again, the Cisco Grove case, where was the, the bow hunter um, 
hiding in a tree and he saw the strange the spaceship come down the strange aliens with the goggles and the weird robot that shot up sleeping gas into the tree from its mouth um and he was shooting down arrows at it he said when he set fire to things and threw them down both the aliens and the robot seemed to be frightened that they'd move away from it and that the ship in inverted commas would move away as well as if they were all part of the same thing and it had some fear of fire why would aliens be frightened of fire none of it makes any sense if you look at it as these are extraterrestrials and it's the same with most ghosts not all of them but with most ghost cases they don't make sense as spirits of the dead now if spirits of dead human beings could come back all the time they'd, they'd, everyone would be doing it they'd be coming back to their families and say oh don't worry yeah yeah i'm dead but i'm all right yeah i'm in the next dimension or heaven god's a great bloke if you've got a lousy haircut he'll never laugh at it and he'll always share his beer they'd be, they'd be doing it all the time and you'd have slaughterhouses full of dead cows looking around confused and stuff but if you look at ghost law it's so strange and these what what manifest are mostly nothing like recognizable human beings i mean there are cases where recognizable human beings have been seen but that they're in the minority um there's a wonderful case from south africa in the 1890s about a poltergeist case where a girl kept getting her hair tied to the old-fashioned brass bed, um, bedstead and a group of men decided to investigate and they all sat around a bed in chairs and switched the lamp off and she started to scream they switched the lamp on and a strand of her hair had been tied up so they untied it switched the lamp off again and they heard her hair rustling they, they switched the lamp on again and they saw something invisibly tugging at her hair then all of a sudden the entity manifests you think a, a talking mongoose is weird this ghost manifested as a giant floating glowing crab a giant glowing crab like you do that'd be scary another case another case I mentioned Doctor Who earlier, and my favourite Doctor was John Pertwee. He's always been my favourite. Tom Baker's a good second, but John Pertwee's my favourite. Uh, don't mention Jodie Whittaker, or I will kill you. Um, when he was a boy, uh, it would have been in the 1930s, he used to stay with a school friend in a mansion house in Sussex. And it was a very well-to-do family, and he said he'd go and stay with them, and they were all great musicians and they could all play things and he always felt left out because he had no musical skill and one time he went to to visit them and his friend's family had other guests so he had to stay in part of the house that wasn't usually used and he overheard his friend's mum and dad talking and the mother says are you sure he's going to be all right in that room and the father said he's a heavy sleeper it won't bother him so he went to bed wondering what we were talking about. He woke up in the middle of the night and was assailed by a foul smell and he likened it to a rotting sheep. And it was so bad it made him sick and he was sick on the bedclothes. So he took them through to the bathroom, washed them and put them on a boiler to dry overnight. So in the morning, embarrassed about being sick, when they asked him if he was all right, he said, yes, he was fine. And the father said to the mother, I told you he'd be all right, he's a heavy sleeper. So the next night he wakes up again 
and he's assailed by this same smell but this time he sees what's making the smell and he describes this thing that he sees as a tree stump that is glowing green crawling along on its roots and its bark is seeming to produce these weird bubbles of light that bubble up from its bark and then just vanish and the whole thing stinks like rotting flesh and it's crawling very slowly towards him and he just freaks out and runs out of the room and the mother and father have this huge row and the mother says i've told you you should never have put him in this room and that part of the mansion was locked that wing was locked and never used again and he never found out what it was now in his uh in his um biography uh, it's called Moon Boots and Dinner Suits. He describes this and he describes the house. He doesn't name the house, but he describes what it was like and that it had a minstrel's gallery and that it was uh, had an Elizabethan dining hall. And it was added to like, and I've never been able to track down the house. But once again, why something so weird? Why not the ghost of a monk or a grey lady or something you would think of? But a ghost tree crawling and that's not the only time ghost trees turn up all sorts of all there are all sorts of strange ghosts that behave in a way that suggests they've got nothing to do whatsoever with the souls of dead human beings strange uh truth often strange in fiction with some of these uh things like say you couldn't like why would you say some of these weird things like going back to the mongoose from the very start like he was born in India yeah. in like 1852. How did he end up in the Isle of Man? It's just like, you wouldn't really, why would you make these things up unless it was true? It's just, it's really, really weird. And if it weird died, aspect of it. I wanted to ask, because it's quite local to Yeah, yeah, um, far away. So I just wanted to ask, sort of going off topic a little bit, because uh, this is quite local to me, but the monster of Martin Mir. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I've thought that. Supposedly late monster, and you've investigated that. Do you want to just uh, talk about what? Because it's, I live, I live in Manchester, the Great Manchester, not too far from Martin Mayer. Uh, so we're interested to hear a bit more about the monster of Martin Mayer. Oh yeah, the monster of Martin Mayer. And Martin Mayer used to be England's biggest lake, but it was drained for farmland in medieval times. And what's left of it is about two acres, uh, a pool of about two acres. It's not terribly deep, but it's part of a wildfowl reserve, and we heard stories about something the size of a car being seen swimming around in this lake and attacking swans and geese and pulling them under and devouring them. So I found this a bit hard to believe. So we rung up and we talked to a guy called Pat Vizhnevsky. Sadly, he's passed away now. He was the chief warden. And he said, yeah, there is something here. I've seen it. So we decided to come up and investigate. And uh, he invited us up. We talked to him and he said he saw something the size of a settee swimming around in the lake. And we talked to twitchers who had seen, bird watchers who had seen wildfowl being pulled under the water by something. Now I took a look at this lake and how small it was and how shallow it was and I thought there's no way there's a big predator in, in there. Half an hour later I saw it. I was walking near the bank and then 
maybe six to ten feet out this huge sausage shaped blacky green thing like a massive draft excluder came up briefly out of the water thrashed around dived under came up again and then dived under again and it was a huge wells catfish the wells catfish comes from eastern europe and western russia and it was introduced to britain by the acclimatization society um there was a guy uh in charge of uh queen victoria's fisheries who was part of this outfit called the acclimatization society and he and his colleagues would get foreign animals and try and acclimatize them to britain and one of the few ones that worked was the wells catfish and he introduced them and the acclimatization society uh, introduced them into Britain but this was an absolute monster horn it was about eight feet long now if you didn't know about Wells catfish if you didn't know there was a big Wells catfish in this lake you saw that thing you wouldn't know what the hell it was it would be a monster but of all the investigations we've done and I've been all over the world chasing all sorts of creatures this one garnered more interest than any other we did about 500 interviews with newspapers and radio shows as far afield as Australia and India and Canada. And it was in, got into the papers. And when our investigation finished, they wanted us to go back up again to film something for television. The film was, film was looking in the lake again just for a, a piece for television. This, this is just a big lake, a, bit, a big fish in a, in a small lake. That's all it was. But for some reason, the media got hold of it and they ran with it. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. It's funny that, like, like you say, sort of the ones that are kind of you think would be nothing get picked up. And then the more they think that's something to this, this is really weird, gets ignored. It's kind of a, a weird paradox going back to sort of Doctor Who thing. There's a paradox um, in, in the media, that sort of stuff, where they will focus on something and that that'll get that go viral, that'll get publicized when you have like lots more evidence of something really unusual and then it just gets overlooked. It's a shame. A shame really. But something that's probably has got more evidence to it because you've been to Sumatra quite a few times. Um I guess looking for the Orang Pandek, which is like a small version of the Bigfoot type creature. So what is it about that that keeps you going back to, How close to Sumatra? Is it being discovered? It is very close to being discovered. Um, <clears throat> this is no kind of supernatural bogeyman. It's a real flesh and blood animal. <clears throat> I've been over there six times now. I've found its footprints, its handprints. We've found its hair, and the hair was examined by Lars Thomas, a Danish biologist, who, looking at its structure, said it's related to the Sumatran orangutan, but it's not the Sumatran orangutan. It's something that's related to it, but distinct, and it's an unknown species of primate. I've heard the damn thing calling. The last time I was there, I heard it calling from about 30 feet away and missed seeing it by second when I tried to film it. One of my colleagues, Dave Archer, a few years ago actually saw the creature squatting in a tree and it got down out of the tree and walked away on its hind legs. So well, I'm absolutely positive the creature wow. is there. And it's just a matter of time before we get it on film. And what we've done this time, we our native guide, um, uh, Dali, we've 
left some cameras with him for him to put up uh, in these remote places in the jungle and just leave them there for months on end. See what and see what we get. We think it's a ground dwelling relative to the orangutan. Whereas orangutans live in the trees, this is one that's adapted for walking on its hind legs on the forest floor. And new species of ape are not unprecedented. As recently as 2017, a new species of orangutan called the Tapanuli orangutan was identified in Sumatra. So new species of ape do turn up. <laughs> hope you uh, find something soon. Think like, mm. um, I mean, what's it like when you're sort of in the jungle? When you are you camping out there? Do you go on like sort of day expeditions into the jungle? What what sort of the process when you when we, you're out we there? Camp into the jungle. We go into deep jungle and we make a base camp, and from there we go out every day into into the jungle. We used to go to a place called Karinchi Sablak National Park. Uh, around an area called uh, Gunung Tuju, the Lake of Seven Peaks, which is this mountain lake in the caldera of an extinct volcano. But the park authorities have started charging people now astronomical amounts of money to go in there with cameras because they realise that there's something there and that Western scientists are interested in it. So they're all the rest. So this last time, we concentrated on jungle areas outside of national parks, but um, we generally make a base camp, identify a good area, make a base camp, and then take trips out uh, every day, trekking in the jungle, putting up camera traps, looking for footprints and handprints and so forth. I absolutely hate camping. I, I do it because I, I have to during expeditions. Why people do it for pleasure? What pleasure they derive out of camping, God knows. Sorry, I was going to say something. <laughs> uh, if you ever, so when you're in in the forest and you're you're camping, it's obviously, especially in, in these countries where there's lots of mad creatures, like ones that we know exist that are dangerous. Like obviously, being in Britain, we're quite lucky that we don't really have any sort of wild creatures that are dangerous compared to other countries. What's it like, sort of, that side of it? Or if you're in your camp and you can, do you hear things walking about? What's that sort of side of it like? Where you think, I'm in the middle of the jungle here, like quite vulnerable? Not last time, but the time before. You sort of get used to it. Not on my last expedition, but the one before, I was up at Gun Tuju. And around this lake, there's a one small area, a small beach where you can camp because the forest goes right the way down to, to the water everywhere else. But this one small area you can camp. And there's a trail leaning up into the jungle. And we'd been there uh, quite a while. It was our last night uh, in the jungle. And we built a big fire. And we were in, in tents. And the native guides were in a pondock, which is a thing they create out of wooden sticks and, and palm leaves. And this little trail leading up into the jungle in the dark i got a terrible feeling of being watched i could feel eyes on me and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and i remember saying to the two other westerners there um there's something along that trail there and it's watching us i know there is i've never felt like this before this sense of being watched by something in the morning when we were tidying up and breaking camp there were fresh tiger tracks there and a Sumatran tiger had come down 
stalked us and then seen the fire and stopped. And in the last the last expedition, one of our camera wow. traps we set up, we didn't get the orang pen neck, but we got a Sumatran tiger on it in an area where there are not supposed to be any Sumatran tigers, which was fantastic. Well, wow. been attacked by a cobra in West. Scary stuff. I used to be a zookeeper at one time, so like I say, I've worked with all sorts of weird animals. Crocodiles, alligators, snakes, lizards, elephants, giraffes, penguins. The worst thing's been dirty and vicious, the chimpanzees. Mm. But I've never been worried. Horrible little things. Yeah, well, we've been covered in leeches. The second time I was in Sumatra, three of us around a campfire one night pulled a hundred leeches between three of us off, off our legs. I've still got the marks all these years later. I've had ticks all over. No, thank you. Uh, in the Gobi Desert, when we were hunting for the Mongolian death worm, in one area we got ticks all over us. We've had not selling it to all me. All kinds of tropical diseases. And some people say, oh, they just do this because they want expensive foreign holidays. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if only been soaked to the skin in a storm in Tasmania when we were hunting the Tasmanian wolf absolutely ringing wet through uh, I twice nearly fell off a mountain in Russia while we were looking for the Russian wild man the Almasti in the same day once I was walking on what I thought was solid solid ground and it was just ice above a crevasse and it all gave way another time a part of a cliff crumbled away when i was on it i've nearly been swept away by um by rapids also in russia russia had it in for me russia tried to kill me three times <laughs> wow that sort of ventures, anyway, it sounds about, that's a luxurious side of it. We've talked about all this, these weird things, but most of my work has been simply looking for unknown species of animal that are real in the same way that you and I are real. Things like the Tasmanian wolf, which is also known as the thylacine, which is a flesh-eating marsupial that looks like a, a wolf or a dog, has tiger-like stripes along its hindquarters. Um, it's a case of convergent evolution where two completely unrelated animals evolve to look like each other because they're living similar lifestyles in a similar ecological niche and this thing looks like a wolf or a dog and it was supposed to have been hunted to extinction in the 1930s but there have been over 4,000 sightings since then including ones by a park ranger and a zoologist and along with the orang pendek it's thought to be the, the cryptid most likely to exist and I've been over there and I've talked to witnesses. I've talked to um, a guy who's employed by the government to go out and shoot feral cats, which are a bloody pest and a menace. He's seen it twice in in the wilds of um, Western Tasmania. Uh, we talked to a guy who ran an arboretum and he said he was in a car with his wife and there was another car load of people behind him. And he saw one of these things running along the side of a road, trying to get under a barbed wire fence on a farm. And two carloads of people saw it. Another guy said he'd seen it in the 1970s. Once again, 
there were five of them in a car going to work. They worked at a hydroelectric plant. And so this thing came out into the road in front of them and they all got a damn good view of it. And the people that were familiar with it when it was still around said that it had a very distinctive smell like a hyena. Because a lot of the, the old bushmen were in the Boer War in Africa and they'd met hyenas. They knew what a hyena smells like. I know what a hyena smells like. And I got that hyena type smell in this remote jungle, remote forest in the west of Tasmania, as if the creature had just crossed the forest path a few moments before it left this lingering odour in the air. Its continued existence has even been predicted by computer programs. There was a, a guy called Professor Henry Nix who developed a computer program called BioClim, and it was meant as a research tool. And you program in everything you know about a geographical area, everything you know about your target species and its preferences, then match them up, and it would predict where the animal will be found within this geographical area. For example, if you were looking for white rhinos in Botswana, it would predict what's the best place to find white rhinos in Botswana. And he tried this with the Tasmanian wolf, and he found out that there was something like a 98% match between where the BioClim program was predicting they should be if they were still alive, and where people were reporting them from. So it's almost certain the Tasmanian wolf is still well, alive. Well, we've covered so much, so much ground on this episode today. I don't even know where to where to go. I could. Mongolian I could speak to you for worm. hours, so Mongolian I think we'd have to... Worm, the horror of the Gobi Desert. Now, cool. The nomads in the Gobi Desert talk about this creature called the Alroy Hoi Hoi, which they call the, it translates as intestine worm. They say it's this long red worm-like animal with scaly skin that comes up to the surface after the rain has fallen. And according to folklore, it can spit a corrosive yellow saliva that acts like acid. And it can also produce blasts of electricity like an electric eel. And the first Westerner to look for it was the paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews, who they based Indiana Jones on, although he was a paleontologist rather than an archaeologist. And he was over there in the 1930s. Uh, I went over there in 2005, and I travelled a thousand miles through the Gobi Desert. And I talked to about two dozen witnesses, and they all described the same animal. They said it was about as thick as your arm, two to three feet long, sausage shaped, reddy brown, scaly. And it was, most of them had just seen it basking in the sun, and they were so frightened of it that it could throw a whole area into a panic. The uh, there's one guy we talked to who had seen it as a boy in the 1930s when he was tending his family's cattle, um, sorry, um, camels and, and goats. And he told his parents, and they were so scared that they packed up the gur, which is the circular tents they have, and moved out of the area. Uh, another guy had seen it just the year before, just the year before we were there. And he'd seen it at an oasis, and he managed to get it on the end of a long stick and pick it up and describe it to us. Uh, we talked to an old retired army colonel who had seen one um, in the borders of China in the desert near the, the Chinese border and he thought it was an old piece of tyre lying in the desert until he got close to it and he said 
it had dew on it on the scales on its back and it was glistening and he thinks that's where the idea of the electricity comes from most people we talked to didn't believe that it could make these blasts of electricity they thought that was folklore but they believed it could spit could spit this corrosive poison and we spoke to about two dozen witnesses that all described this this same animal and i think it's not a worm at all it's a burrowing reptile it's a, there are a group of reptiles called worm lizards <coughs> or amphisbanas which are not snakes and not lizards they're in a little group in their own and they're very poorly studied and they're sausage shaped things to be honest they look like big cocks more than anything if you look up worm lizards on, online you'll see they look like big scaly cocks um, we think it might be a, a large undiscovered form of worm lizard or failing that maybe an undiscovered form of samboa and most of the powers attributed to it are probably apocryphal because you get this sometimes you get strange powers or folklore growing up about an animal where they, they attribute it with strange powers they used to think that gorillas would tear branches off trees and use them as clubs to fight elephants and they'd carry off native girls and rape them and of course they, they don't do any of these things and there's a snake in the sudan um, called the apris, the local people call the apris, and it's a form of samboa. They believe it's so deadly that it doesn't even have to bite you to kill you. If you so much as touch it, you'll drop down dead, and they're terrified of it. And it's completely harmless unless you have to be a mouse. Completely harmless. So I think a similar thing has happened with the death word. These stories told about it are apocryphal because nobody mm. saw it killing anything bigger than a mouse. And uh, nobody knew anybody that had been killed by it. They just knew old stories of, of it spitting at people and killing them. So sometimes strange stories go up like Fascinating. Exaggerate, exaggerate the creature. Yeah. For sure, for sure. On that note, I think that's... Uh... Oh, you've, you've got enough. Okay, yeah, I could talk all night. So I was going to say... <laughs> Yeah, definitely do a part two. I think that's it last. I mean, like I say, just absolutely tons well, and tons of gold fruit. But I yeah, we'll. No, far after the but, wild man roaming around outside in Russia, but we'll save that for next time, maybe. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So, where can we find. I know you've written quite a few books. Where can our listeners find you or your books? Well, my two latest, but my, my new book, um, The Highest Strangeness, isn't out yet. But the last two are called. Adventures in Cryptozoology and In Search of Real Monsters. And you can order them off Amazon. Just type in Adventures in Cryptozoology and or In Search of Real Monsters and you'll get them. That's sort of an introduction to cryptozoology and an overview of some of my expeditions. Uh, if you want to look up the website, it's www.cfz.org.uk. That's the Centre for Fortean Zoology. And my own email, if you want to contact me, is rick it is oh, my one, but is doctor3uk at yahoo.com. That's doctor3uk at yahoo.com. And we're always looking for sponsors for our expeditions because as it stands, we can afford to go out maybe once a year for two weeks to four weeks, depending when in reality we want to be going out to these places and staying there for months and months on end because that's how you find these things we found with the camera traps when we tested them in england 
if you leave them up for a week you might get a bird if you leave them up for several months you get foxes deer badgers otters woodpeckers and a woman having a piddle in the bushes that's all the things we got when we left them up for a long time so <laughs> we, we we need to spend more time in the in the field that's how you're going to find them with the uh with a snow leopard, for example, when I went out, first went out to try and find a snow leopard, it took them something like seven years to film a snow leopard in the wild. And that's an animal we know exists. So if you think about something like the Yeti, which is an intelligent animal oh, that yeah. doesn't want to be found, it might take you a lifetime to be found, but it might never be found. But it's all down to the folding green stuff. That's what we need. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for sharing the... The wealth of knowledge and good luck back going back to Yalaman in search of Jeff the talking mongoose. Hopefully, you uh, get something from that trip. Yeah. See if we can uh, reinvigorate, reinvigorate and cool. use a tulpa. They can be recharged. Definitely. Well, yeah, thank you. And we shall speak soon, I hope, and uh, have a good evening. Cheers. Thank you.